a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me again in Bible study today. We're running, running a little bit behind our First Samuel studies. We started that a few weeks ago, looked at First Samuel chapter 1, and then the first part of chapter 2, if you remember that, and Hannah's song. And then the following week after that, David Choke taught us on the assurance of salvation. So we got away from it that week. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 1 through 6. So today, we're going to go back to First Samuel. We'll pick it up where we left off, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. But first, let me say this, just because I think it relates to today's study. I want to take just a minute or two to talk about the very sad and really disturbing situation that the Southern Baptist Convention finds itself in these days. You know, we're just a few weeks away, maybe a few days away now from the Southern Baptist Convention 2022 in Anaheim. You've probably heard about the 300-page report that's just been released about sex abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. Very awful, disgusting, horrific. Hundreds of names of leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention who've been accused of sex abuse over the past several years. Now, that would be bad enough in and of itself. It's horrific. It needs to be dealt with. There's no question about that. Situation is kind of complicated by the fact that Southern Baptist Convention churches are not organized as a top-down hierarchy. You realize that, right? There's no one outside a local church that has authority over that church. You know, like the Roman Catholic Church clearly has a pope. But many denominations have leaders outside the church who have responsibility for the church, and the church is responsible to them. But in Southern Baptist Convention, each church calls and dismisses its own pastor. Nobody tells it who to bring in as a pastor or not to bring in. Same thing with other staff. Same thing with, with what buildings to build or when to build buildings or how much to build. You know, it's all up to the local church. In the same way, each church has its own budget. You know, There's not somebody uh, higher than the local church in authority over the local church that decides how much money we, we get or anything like that. You know, Each church takes an offering and, and just makes its own budget based on its income, its offerings. So they decide. Every single church decides what to do with gifts and offerings. You know, it's, it's, there's just no top-down denominational organizational structure at all. However, the Southern Baptist Convention has, from time to time, told individual churches, you can no longer be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, that's happened, and it does happen, and it should happen from time to time. It's kind of like church discipline in a way, but it's a, it's a way of saying, look, you've done something that's that's embarrassing to the Southern Baptist Convention, so you can no longer be a church in good standing in the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, we can't tell them how to spend their money. We can't tell them when to get rid of a pastor or anything like that, but we can at least say you're not part of us anymore. But we're definitely at a moment of great shame and embarrassment for the Southern Baptist Convention. It seems that over and over and over again, some horrific and very sinful decisions have been made 
that involve either the actual act of sexual abuse or maybe in some cases the covering up of sexual abuse. Not only that, and this is very disturbing to me, but the report seems to me anyway to have been released at a, in a time to be very much in the news, in the national news, just before the 2022 convention. And I think at least part of the hope of some is it will deflect from attention from another problem within the convention. And that's the problem we have. And it's a serious problem. It's also a sickening problem of some of our very well-known spiritual leaders who are unwilling to take a clear and unequivocal firm stand, for example, against critical theory or critical race theory or against Black Lives Matter, or against voting for somebody who supports abortion, or you know some of the elements of the sexual revolution, or wanting to go kind of easy on people who are involved in the LGBTQ plus revolution instead of calling sin, sin, like God does. So we got a problem there. We're living in a time when many so-called spiritual leaders, including pastors, youth pastors, worship leaders, denominational leaders, don't seem to be taking sin very seriously. We're living in a time when many are giving, I guess, lip service to the Bible, but they're actually living and giving into their sinful sexual desires, other kinds of desires, maybe the fear of losing people in their churches or the fear of losing money or the fear of losing esteem from the world around us. But they're not, there's not much fear of God there. You understand what I'm saying? It is a serious, terrible time. What makes it even more sad, in a way, is it's nothing new. I mean, this has been going on forever. I mean, First Samuel chapter 2, we see something very similar. That's why I gave this kind of an introduction. Remember, at this point, Israel is nearing the end of the period of the Judges, which is a horrific time. Samuel was probably born around 1100 B.C., and the things we're reading about today occurred just a few years after that, because obviously Samuel is still a young boy here. This is right after Hannah's song. This is verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. King James Version, some other translations translate that Hebrew word that's translated worthless here, and they make it into a proper name. They were sons of Belial or Belial or Belial. Some people pronounce it. Belial is probably closer to Hebrew. But anyway, it can give the impression that Belial was some kind of a pagan god. But most Hebrew scholars think it really was just a Hebrew word at the time that meant worthless or wicked. Now, what the reason they sometimes capitalize it and make it into a kind of god is because later on, some Jewish writers did start using that word as a proper noun and kind of like a synonym for Satan himself. And I think that's probably why the King James Version translates it that way, because of the way the Jews later on use that word. Paul used it that way, by the way, in his second letter to the Corinthians. He was commanding them not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And his reasoning was, what accord has Christ with, there's the word in Greek, it's Belial, just a transliteration of the Hebrew, Belial. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? But literally, it just means they were worthless, wicked men, and yet they were supposed to be spiritual leaders. They didn't know the Lord, but they're supposed to be spiritual leaders. They had no fear of God in them, but they were supposed to be spiritual leaders. Eli knew the Lord, but his sons didn't. We're going to come back to that. Verse 13, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. 
All that the fort brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he'll not accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it to me now, and if not, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men, he's talking about Eli's sons, spiritual leaders, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now God had prescribed, using Moses in the first five books, exactly what the priest's portion was supposed to be. It's in Leviticus chapter 7. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, and the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that's contributed, I've taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron, the priest, and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. So they, the, the priest, Aaron and his descendants, which meant all the priests of Israel, they were supposed to have the breast and the right thigh. Not just whatever they wanted. He designated very clearly what they were supposed to have. Not just whatever they could snare with the flesh hooks. That, that sounds pretty generous, actually, doesn't it? God had also given explicit instructions regarding the fat. We saw it there. But in verse 23, it says, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall not eat the fat of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that's torn by beast may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Now, we won't go into all the details right now. Why? But it's a very clear command, wasn't it, for the priest? The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. Also, it's important to notice their part was to be boiled. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it and the bread that's in the basket of ordination offerings as I commanded, saying Aaron and his sons shall eat it. They didn't want it boiled. They wanted it raw. Now, I don't think that necessarily means they wanted to eat it raw. They just wanted to fix it the way they wanted to fix it, the way they preferred to cook it. Or maybe, and, and I think this is likely, they wanted to sell it. Uh, they knew it would be in greater demand and bring them a better price if it was raw instead of already cooked. So these guys were totally greedy, insensitive, brutal, selfish, irreverent, godless. No respect for the things of God. No fear of God. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Now, notice this. The men who are supposed to be spiritual leaders, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, as wicked as they were, they couldn't stop the work of the Lord. This is very important. God had a plan. Samuel is going to be a godly boy and later a godly man, and God would use Samuel to be his spokesman. Ungodly leaders won't stop God. We don't ever need to get that idea. We may start thinking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Look at what our leaders are doing. God says, you don't have to worry about it. I'm still in charge.
last year when we were at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in Nashville, Vicki and I were in the hotel just getting off an elevator, and there was a guy who was obviously there for the same convention that we were, uh, realized, and obviously he was conservative like I was, and he, he, he was kind of upset because of the way things were going, as was I. And he said, what are we going to do? What's happening here? And I said, well, I know this, God's in charge. And he said, is he? I said, yes, he really is. <laughs> and he finally said, yeah, I guess you're right. But it's hard sometimes, isn't it? When we see our leaders messing up like they are, uh, we think, well, what's going on? Well, God knows what's going on. And he knew what was going on with Halty and Phineas. And he had a man. <laughs> and his boy, this time he was a boy, Samuel. There are other examples of this in the history of the church. By the other 1500s, you know this, the leadership in the Roman Catholic Church had become so disgustingly corrupt and ungodly. But that didn't stop God. You know, what did he do? He raised up Luther. He raised up Calvin. He raised up Zwingli, Melanchthon, Bullinger, many other godly reformers. And his work went on even greater than before. <laughs> That's what God does. And if it ever happens that the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention becomes so thoroughly corrupt and ungodly, as they were even, it won't stop God's work. <laughs> He's going to raise up godly people to carry on his work until Jesus comes back. So we don't need to worry about that. That doesn't mean we can get out of the battle. That doesn't mean we don't have decisions to make. It doesn't mean we don't need to take take some actions, <laughs> but it does mean we don't need to worry about it. By the way, the ephod, it said little Samuel had, it was a sleeveless outer garment that the priest wore. And the fact that Samuel was wearing one shows that it's understood he's a little priest in training here. That's what you know. his mother brought him there for. And, and Eli's training him to be a priest, even though he's not from the right tribe. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So Hannah doesn't have Samuel in her home. Samuel's living in the tabernacle with Eli. But obviously she loves him a great deal. And, and as he grew older and bigger, she kept making bigger and bigger robes for him. And I'm sure her visits to the tabernacle brought a lot of joy to herself and to Samuel. Verse 20, then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. Of course, Elkanah is Hannah's husband, Daniel, uh, Samuel's dad. And, and he says, and Eli's pronouncing a blessing on them. So then they would return to their home. Verse 21 says, indeed, the Lord did visit Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Remember her problem originally, she couldn't have any kids. And now the God's blessed her. The young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. So he's blessed her now with five kids. Verse 22, now Eli is very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So Eli's old, and he has heard what's going on. He's learned what Hophni and Phinehas have been doing, and he's obviously distressed. And Eli... Is, is, has messed up here. We're going to see that more clearly as we read on, but there's no question he should have been more forceful. He should have been more clear. He should have done more to try to maintain the integrity of the priesthood than he did. Now, 
I mean, I realize his sons are adult men at this point, so he might not have been able to stop them from sinning completely, but he could have fired them from the active ministry. You see what I'm saying? He could have said, you're not going to do this anymore. <laughs> you ever hear of John Trapp? You ever read any of John Trapp's writings or quotes? <laughs> He's fun to read. He was a great Anglican preacher, and he was a Bible commentator. He wrote really interesting commentaries on the Bible. I mean, from a long, well, he died over 350 years ago. 1669 was the year of his death. And if you've ever read commentaries or written back in those days, they're kind of difficult. Most of them, you know, they're, they're sometimes very, very wordy and a little bit tedious. You have to read a long way to get a nugget out of it. But, but Trapp is known for his blunt and colorful manner of writing. And uh, David Guzik quotes Trapp here about what Eli should have said. <laughs> Trapp saying, well, what Eli should have said to his sons was this. And now I'm quoting Trapp. Draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore, ye degenerate brood and sons of Belial and not of Eli, ye brats of fathomless perdition. It starts stinking naught that I hear, and woe is me that I yet live to hear it. It had been better that I had died long since, or that you had been buried alive, than this to live and stink above the ground." Trap was not a soft-spoken man. He didn't miss words. But Eli's words, why do you do such things? And it's not a good report. I'm hearing they're just too mild for the kind of wickedness and ungodliness and rebellion that his sons were guilty of here. Some have said that maybe Eli was too old and feeble to have actually stopped his grown sons from doing what they did. But surely he could have done a better job warning his sons of what they were doing and how horrible it was. And he could have done a better job warning the people that these are ungodly false ministers. On the other hand, we need to be careful about putting too much blame on Eli. You know, we, we, we could jump on him pretty severely, I guess. But you got to remember, he was also the, pretty much the adopted father of Samuel. He's the one that raised Samuel. Samuel turned out to be a mighty man of God, right? Listen, guys. God made all of us in his image, and he created all of us as free moral agents. We have decisions to make, every single one of us. We can't make all the decisions for our kids, especially when they become adults. Sometimes parents raise two different kids. You've noticed this, I'm sure, essentially the same way, and yet they're entirely different outcomes. You say, well, what do they do wrong with that kid? Well, maybe nothing. Kids aren't cabbages. You don't, you don't, kids aren't automobiles. You know, you, they're, they're free moral agents. They get to make decisions for themselves, especially when they become adults. There's a proverb that I think a lot of people get confused about, and maybe they misuse this proverb. It's Proverbs 22.6. I'm sure you've heard it. You may have used it, but just be careful how you use it. The words are, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And some will read a verse like that and conclude, well, if the kids are going astray, then the parents must have messed up. It's got to be the parents' fault. First of all, I've heard some Hebrew scholars say that the Hebrew could be translated this way, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, it will not depart from him. That may be true. But even if it isn't true, we need to remember there's a huge difference in a proverb and a promise. Guys, be really careful about going to the book of Proverbs and trying to claim Proverbs as promises. They're not promises. This is a proverb. Don't make that mistake. That's, that's bad Bible interpretation, bad hermeneutics. 
There are a lot of examples of Proverbs like that that make, make this more clear. For example, Proverbs 31, 28, talking about the godly woman. It, it says there in Proverbs 31, 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Now, that's a proverb. Uh, that's Normally, that's true. But sadly, and I'm sure you realize this, there are many godly women, wives and mothers, whose children do not rise up and call her blessed and whose husbands do not praise her because they are also free moral agents and they have selfish hearts and they don't realize what a treasure they have. They're just taking her for granted. So it's a proverb. Generally, it's true. It's not a promise. Here's another one like that. You see a man skillful in his work. He'll stand before kings. He'll not stand before obscure men. That's not a promise that every man skillful in his work will literally stand before kings. It just communicates as a proverb that in general, a skillful laborer, a man who's worked hard to develop some skill, well, he will, in generally, he'll be recognized, he'll be appreciated, he'll be valued. Here's another one. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. That's a proverb. Generally, obedient children live healthier, longer lives because they're not as likely to make foolish decisions that might lead to harm or sickness or death. But not all obedient children live long, peaceful lives. I'm sure you've known some godly kids who died young. By the way, uh, when we're talking about Proverbs, that's true for non-biblical Proverbs as well. You know, that, that's just the nature of a proverb. You know, we got a proverb that many of us have used. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Have you heard that one? Now, that's a proverb. I mean, it, yeah, eating an apple is pretty healthy. It's, it's good fruit, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily keep you from getting sick. We know that generally eating healthy, good food, including healthy fruit like apples, does lead to a healthier life. It's a good proverb. We just need to be careful not to go too far in making conclusions here about Eli in this case, because Hophni and Phinehas were wicked sons. It may not mean he was a disgusting dad. But I do think we can say, based on the scripture we're given, that it's obvious Eli didn't do everything he could have done in this situation. But ultimately, whatever Eli did, right or wrong, Hophni and Phinehas chose to rebel against God. They are going to bear their own fruit, and their consequences are going to be severe. Eli's reaction to Hophni and Phinehas also could be an illustration of how easy it is for us to rationalize how we react to things especially when it involves embarrassing sins. You know, think about what's going on in the convention again. If a pastor or a Christian worker turns out to be guilty of sexually abusing someone, that's a horrifying sin, isn't it? And obviously it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for the church or it's embarrassing for the denomination or whatever organization they're part of. And it can really be tempting just to kind of, let's keep this quiet. Okay, let's not talk about this. And maybe even just let this person go. But then what if he goes to another church and does it all over again? You see, that's what's happened in the convention. Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing. But right now, there are a lot of churches and pastors who wish they had done the right thing, even though it was embarrassing, even though it was difficult. By the way, Eli asked them another interesting question here in verse 25 that I believe God gives us an answer to in the New Testament. Did you notice that? He said, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, I think what he means here is, listen, sons, 
If you get yourself in trouble with another man, God may come to your rescue. He may, for one thing, he may change that man's heart towards you. That man may choose not to hold it against you. That man may choose to say it's okay. Uh, The Lord may help him realize he doesn't need to be taking vengeance. You know, that's a biblical principle. But if you rebel against God himself, the way you are, there's no one to come to your rescue. Who's going to rescue you from God? God may rescue you from men. Who's going to rescue you from God? But when we come to the New Testament, we actually learn there really is an answer to his question. If someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? You know where I'm going, don't you? What's the answer? If someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Jesus. Jesus. And he makes it very clear in the New Testament. Listen to what John wrote. And this is in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, an advocate, Jesus, he intercedes for us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans chapter 8, Paul makes the same point. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is what? You see it? Who indeed is interceding for us. So in answer to Eli's question, if we sin against the Lord and we're willing to repent, Jesus intercedes for us. But you know what? That's taught even in the Old Testament. You remember this verse? 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, some people might think about this a little more deeply and say, no, wait, wait just a minute, wait just a minute. If God could forgive people in the Old Testament before Jesus had died on the cross, then why did Jesus have to die? I mean, why couldn't he just pronounce us forgiven in the New Testament if he could do that in the Old Testament? What's the point of the death of Jesus? Why did Jesus have to die? And the answer to that is that even in the Old Testament, God did not just forgive by an arbitrary decree. He didn't just pronounce people forgiven as if the sin were no big deal. That would have made him an unjust God. You see the point? Sin pays a horrible consequence, death. When you sin, you inquire a death debt. God didn't just decide sin's no big deal. I forgive you. No, he forgave them on the basis of, of the, at that point, it was future, but the, the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, which was in the future for them. In the meantime, you remember what he did? He required all those animal sacrifices to remind them there is a huge cost for the forgiveness of sins. It's not a light and easy, trivial thing. God's righteous wrath and God's righteous judgment, God's righteous justice against sin has to be satisfied. And those animal sacrifices weren't enough, of course, but they did point the people that it, to, to tell them it was a horrible thing they were doing when they sinned, and it pointed the, their need for the ultimate sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could ultimately satisfy God's justice would be the death of God himself, God the Son, on the cross. Jesus' death was for the sins of the past as well as for our own sins. Sometimes we have trouble seeing this because we don't really understand the horrific meaning of sin. You know, we're living in a time and a culture where sin is trivialized all the time. 
We talked about that last time. While we're on this subject, sometimes people wonder the same kind of thing uh, in a different way. They'll say, if God expects me to forgive other people when they sin against me, just as an act of my will, why can't he do the same thing for me? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, first of all, there really is a categorical difference here. When I forgive someone else or when you forgive someone else, we may say they have sinned against us. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. But it's really not because they've sinned against us. It's because they've hurt us. Not ultimately because they've sinned against us. At least not in the same way that they've sinned against God. You understand what I'm saying? We may say it that way, but if we want to get precise, we recognize it was God that they sinned against. It was God's law that they broke when they hurt us. So their sins were against God, but it resulted in my being hurt. So when I forgive somebody, I'm not really saying I'm cleansing you of your sin. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't cleanse anybody of their sin. Neither can you. What we're saying is I'm choosing not to seek revenge. I'm choosing not to try to hurt you back. Yes, I'm hurt, but I'm going to leave that between you and God. I'm going to leave the, your judgment for your sins between you and the Lord. <laughs> and if they'll trust Jesus, of course, he can forgive their sins because of Jesus. But God is the one who actually forgives and cleanses away sin. God forgives us, and then he looks at us whom he has forgiven as if we'd never done the sin in the first place. But if God just arbitrarily decreed your sins are forgiven without the death of Jesus, it would make him an unjust God. When Jesus forgave men's sins, he knew the price he was going to pay for that. God's perfect justice requires that sin be paid for. His righteous wrath against sin has to be satisfied. Otherwise, God would himself would be saying, ah, sin's no big deal. Just forget it. But sin is a big deal. It's a monstrously big deal. Jesus had to pay for it on the cross. So Eli's question has an answer. We do have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But you, you see the irony here in the sin of Hophni and Phinehas? <laughs> the very work these guys were supposed to be daily involved in was what? The work of offering sacrifices to God. The work of acknowledging sin, asking for forgiveness. The offering of the death of an animal to cover their sins, that pointed eventually to the coming of the Lamb of God who would sacrifice himself for our sins. That's the work they were supposed to be involved in. It's the same way as pastors who are warning people about sin when they themselves are treating sin very casually. This was very precious work these men were supposed to be doing, profound, significant work they were supposed to be doing. And even though they were in the middle of going through the motions of doing this work, they were, they were profaning it, profaning it. This is a man might today as he indulges in sin, even while he's preaching against it. Now, when we get to the last part of verse 25, to our ears, it sounds kind of awful. It sounds unfair. I mean, what? The will of the Lord to put them to death? <laughs> so, so it might be tempting for some to get the wrong idea here. You, you might be tempted to picture Hophni and Phinehas almost in their hearts saying, look, we don't want to behave this way. We'd love to repent and get things right, but God won't let us. <laughs> now, we know that's ridiculous, don't we? They've chosen to rebel against God. And God is, by his nature, a righteous judge. And it is always the will of the Lord to judge rightly. 
That's why we desperately need Jesus. But for Hoffman and Phineas, judging righteously meant the death penalty. That's what it eventually cost them their lives. We looked at verse 26 a few weeks ago. It shows us how Samuel points to Jesus. Now, the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. So let's go on to verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? You see what's happening? God sent a prophet, a man, to Eli to warn him. In this case, God chooses for this prophet to be anonymous. We don't know his name, but his message is obviously right on. Your father refers to Aaron. The house of Aaron was chosen for the priesthood and all the priests were descended from their father, Aaron. Verse 28, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Here's Eli's big problem. He was not personally guilty of ignoring God's law himself. He would never have done what his sons did. He wasn't committing immorality. But his sons were, and he was not holding them properly accountable. If we had asked him about that failure, he might have said, well, I told them it's wrong, but they just won't listen to me. But he was the high priest. He was responsible for holding them accountable. And he had not done all that he could do to stop it. Verse 30. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now that promise was made not to Eli, but to Aaron. And here it is in Exodus 29. You shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Later, that promise was made to Phinehas. That was Aaron's grandson. And this is in Numbers chapter 25, verse 12. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him, speaking of Phinehas in this case, my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. But the priesthood would certainly leave the family of Eli. But when it did, it was still in the lineage of Aaron. Aaron had other descendants. We read how God changed the lineage to other descendants of Aaron in 1 Kings chapter 2. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And the priesthood passed to the family of Zadok. The king, that would be Solomon, put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. 
In that passage I read a little earlier, you may have noticed the words that God gave to Eli that were kind of interesting. He said, those who honor me, I will honor. You remember that? Verse 30, therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. as the promise was made to Aaron. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. There's an interesting story that involves this verse. Those who honor me, I will honor. It shows up in a very poignant story about Eric Little. L-I-D-D-E-L-L. I would tend to pronounce it Liddell, but I think they pronounce it Little. You remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Have you seen it? If you haven't seen it, you ought to, you ought to watch that movie. It came out in 1981. Can you believe that? <laughs> if you're old like me, <laughs> over 40 years ago, I mean, it's hard to believe. Everything's hard to believe when it comes to time. <laughs> told the powerful story of Eric Little. That's, it, was, it was kind of a story about his life. And David Guzik shared part of the story in his commentary. He said, Eric Little was one of Britain's great athletes, and later he gave his life for Jesus on the mission field. In 1924, he was to run for Britain in the Olympics when it was discovered that his preliminary heats of his best event, the 100 meter, would be run on a Sunday. Quietly but firmly, Little refused to run. The day of the 400 meters race came, and as Little went to the starting blocks, an unknown man slipped a piece of paper in his hand with a quotation from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Those who honor me, I will honor. That day, Eric Little set a world's record in a 400 meter race. Isn't that amazing? God honored him because Eric Little tried to honor God. By the way, after the Olympics, Little did go on to serve as a missionary to China. He died in 1945, and there's an interesting story about his death. He was only 43 when he died. He died in a Japanese internment camp in China. But God again honored him, and he used Eric Little to bring himself great glory. And here we are. We're still talking about him today. And by the way, according to Wikipedia, in the year 2008, this was just before the Beijing Olympics, the Chinese authorities released some more information about Little. They said that he refused an opportunity to leave the camp. He had an opportunity to leave. And instead of leaving himself, he gave his place to a pregnant woman. Apparently, the Japanese and the British, with Churchill's approval, had agreed upon a prisoner exchange, and Little, Little was supposed to be part of that, but he gave it to a pregnant woman. And his family didn't even know about that until China released that in the year 2008. That surprised even his family. Eric Little honored God, just as Hophni and Phinehas certainly did not honor God. So God finishes the sentence this way. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me, as Hophni and Phinehas had, shall be lightly esteemed. We certainly don't have any esteem for Hophni and Phinehas, do we? Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you'll look with envious eye on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. So the rebellion of the sons of Eli would bring lots of grief and lots of pain. The implication is that the descendants would continue in rebellion and continue to suffer the consequences of this sin. Verse 34, 
And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. So the consequences mentioned in verses 31 through 33 will be long range, but this one is coming quickly. Hophni and Phinehas are going to die, and they're going to die very soon. In chapter 4, we learn that their old nemesis, the Philistines, you remember how, many, how much trouble the Israelites had with the Philistines? They're going to be attacking again, and someone will get the crazy idea of taking the ark into the battle and use it as a lucky talisman, trusting the ark instead of trusting God. Philistines are going to capture that ark, and Hophni and Phinehas will die on that day. They'll both be killed. If you were with us in January, you may remember we did a study on the Tabernacle of David in this class. And if you're interested in the details of that account, you, you might want to find that video. It's fascinating. It's in that YouTube list of our class Bible study videos. It's there. It shows how God works in some amazing ways. Verse 35, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. This is probably, I think, primarily a prophecy of Samuel. He's going to replace Eli's ungodly sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and he's going to be faithful, and he's going to do all that God asked him to do. We don't have all the details of his descendants, but we do know that later King David placed Samuel's grandson Heman in charge of the worshipers, and we also are told that Heman, who was a descendant of Samuel, had 14 sons may also have a second fulfillment in the life of Zadok because Zadok and his sons replaced the descendants of Eli. Some have said that the words build him a sure house might not refer to his descendants, but for the temple which Solomon built, turns out that Zadok was the first high priest to serve in Solomon's temple. Of course, ultimately, as most Old Testament prophecies do, it points us to Jesus. We learn in Hebrews, he's our ultimate faithful high priest. And he, of course, replaced the entire Aaronic priesthood. But it does say here, he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. That doesn't sound like Jesus because Jesus doesn't go in and out before God's anointed. Jesus is God's anointed. He's the anointed one. So Jesus is both the priest and the king. So primarily, it probably refers to either Samuel or Zadok. The anointed one that you're talking about here probably is a human king who would be ruling at the time of the fulfillment. That would be King Saul. For Samuel, King David, and King Solomon, they were God's anointed as well. Verse 36, And everyone who's left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Maybe this is a way to emphasize that the greed of Hophni and Phinehas is definitely not going to be rewarded. Now, before we stop... I want us to read at least part of the next chapter, 1 Samuel 3. I know this is going long. But this is going to be related. This, this is the account of the first time that God spoke to Samuel, and Samuel thought it was Eli. You remember that account, don't you? Let's read some of it. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. You remember in the times immediately preceding the ministry of Samuel, there were no prophets being raised up. God had given his word through Moses and through Joshua, but that was like 300 years before. By the time of Samuel... Israel had been through a very dark period, the time of the judges. God did raise up certain key people to lead them out of immediate danger during the time of judges. He preserved them as a people. But there was a dark time there where we're told every man did what was right in his own eyes, and there were very few who took the scriptures that they had from Moses and from Joshua very seriously. They just didn't, they didn't listen to God until God raised up Samuel. 
At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he couldn't see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Verse 3 means it wasn't yet dawn. The candles on the candlestick are still burning. But figuratively, I think there's something implied here too. It's also true that while there had been no word from the Lord in a long, long time, and while Israel at that time, like America now, was getting very, very dark, God is still around. And though it's dark, God's getting ready to do something. And of course, in this case that we're reading about, he's getting ready to use Samuel. I think it probably means the ark was in the tabernacle and Samuel was sleeping in the tabernacle, not that Samuel was sleeping in the most holy place. I don't think he would have done that. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you call me. And he said, I didn't call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you call me. He said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again, and the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. So this is obviously an audible voice. Samuel's experiencing what we call a theophany. Jesus had come to give him a message, and he did it audibly. We know it's audible because Samuel mistook the voice to be Eli calling him, and it isn't just a voice. Verse 10 says, The Lord came and stood. Of course, God doesn't tell us how old Samuel was when this happened, but evidently he's still pretty young. Jewish historian Josephus, who didn't live at that time, of course, he lived in the time of, well, right after the time of Jesus. He, he lived in the first century AD, but he said that uh, Samuel was 12, but all Josephus is doing is reporting the Jewish traditions that he was 12. We don't really know. Verse 7 says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. We know that Samuel's about to become a great prophet of the Lord. He's going to hear plenty from the Lord. The point is that later when God speaks to Samuel, he'll easily recognize the voice of God, but he hadn't yet. This is his very first experience as a prophet. It's also interesting that Eli has a good attitude about this. He could have said, wait a minute, I'm the high priest here. If God's going to speak to somebody, it should be me, not to some kid. <laughs> But Eli seems to recognize God can speak to whomever he wishes, and surely he's been aware of this difference between Samuel's attitude and the attitude of his own sons. He may realize Samuel really is the logical one for God to speak to. He really is the godly one, even though he's still very young. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of anyone who hears it will tingle. It's an interesting phrase God uses here to make the ears tingle. It was a figure of speech. It's used a few times in the Old Testament to indicate there's a real, serious, severe judgment on the way. Jeremiah wrote this. He said, You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. 
In 2 Kings chapter 21, we read this, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. When Habakkuk saw a vision of a horrific time of God's outpoured wrath that was coming, he says his response was, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver. And it's the same Hebrew word as tingle. It's translated as quiver. At the sound, rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Verse 12, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. The Hebrew word for restrain that's used here is translated dim four different times in the Old Testament to refer to eyesight, old men's eyesight may grow dim. Isaac and Job both suffered from dimmed eyesight. We're told that Moses did not have dimmed eyesight. Zechariah warned that a shepherd who left his flock would suffer dimmed eyesight. The idea here is probably that even if he couldn't stop them, he should have at least tried to dim them a little bit, hinder them, slow them down, restrain them. Maybe he was afraid of what they might do to him. I don't know. We've already talked about that. But they were guilty of flagrant, horrific sin. He was guilty of not dealing with it. Many churches today are carrying that same kind of guilt. There are members who get into flagrant sin, not just pastors, brings reproach to Christ. And the church has a responsibility before God to take a stand. And many, many people and many, many churches are fearful. They're afraid if they take a stand that, well, what, what are that family going to do? They, they may all leave the church, and they might. But the consequences of a few people leaving may not be as severe as the consequences of disobeying God. It may be one of the many reasons why many churches have so little power. And in the day we're living in, with so many people who reject the Bible's claims on their lives, we're going to see that problem get more and more serious. There's so many people, and they'll come into the churches and see if we'll accept them. Of course, many parents and grandparents like Eli are making the same terrible mistake. We don't want to take a clear stand with our kids or our grandkids, even though it may be leading them into destruction. And we may not be able to ultimately keep them from making wrong decisions, but we can probably do a better job than Eli did of trying to restrain them. Can we not? I know we can't ultimately control what they do. We can try to restrain them. We can try to teach them God's truth. Verse 14, therefore, I swear to the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Isn't that a terrifying verse? It's too late, he said, for the house of Eli. I think it's at least possible that we could consider the prophecy of that anonymous prophet in chapter 2 we read uh, was a warning of what might happen if repentance doesn't come. Well, repentance didn't come, and now it's too late. There comes a time when it's too late. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. Eli said, what was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Eli can probably tell from Samuel's demeanor that he has some very bad news. 
Samuel did not run to Eli as soon as he was up to excitedly tell him, hey, Eli, listen to what the Lord said. No, 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 no. He doesn't want to have to deal with it. And, and besides, Eli knows, basically. I mean, he's already heard from that anonymous prophet. He knows nothing's changed. He knows the news has got to be bad. Verse 18, so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. If you read that the wrong way, you could take it as an arrogant, flippant attitude. Yeah, it's the Lord. Let him do what he wants to do. But that, that, I don't think that's Eli. That doesn't sound like Eli to me. I think Eli's just very weak. He knows that judgment's due. And he seems to accept it with kind of a sad resignation here. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were talking about 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's another way Samuel was a type of Jesus. Uh, you know, the idea is uh, the Lord made sure that all Samuel's words hit their target. None of them just hit the ground without an effect. And, of course, that's a picture of Jesus. His words were the very word of God. His words did not return void. Never have, never will. They accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish. None of Jesus' words ever fall to the ground. Verse 20, And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Dan is the very northern border of Israel. Beersheba is very far south in Israel, to the southern border. It was just an expression they used at that time. It meant all across the land. Kind of like saying, everybody in the United States was affected, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. <laughs> so God raised up Samuel and used him in a very powerful way, in spite of Hophni and Phinehas. And we can thank God that when the men we had thought to be our spiritual leaders sell out or become full of themselves like Hophni and Phinehas did, when our spiritual leaders begin to compromise God's truth in order to be more acceptable to men or to keep givers from leaving the church or whatever they're doing, God will always raise up a Samuel. So let's pray for that in our own day. That when so many people that we thought we could depend on are compromising his truth, let's pray that God will raise up some more Samuels. <laughs> let's do that now. Father, you know our situation better than we know our situation. It seems to us, even in our limited view of things, our limited understanding, and we know we see through a glass darkly, but Lord, it seems to us that we need some Samuels. We need you to raise up some men who will look to you and keep their focus on you and will not be afraid of men who will not be trying to impress other people, who will not be trying to stay cool with the society around them in our culture, but who will be standing firm in your word and on your truth, even if people leave, even if people get upset, even if people ostracize them, they will keep their focus on you. Lord, no matter what happens across our world, across our country, across our convention, Lord, we pray that you would help us, each one of us individually, to keep our focus on you and do what's right and not give in to the pressure to compromise. So help us, Lord. Again, raise up some Samuels and we'll give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.